0: Hey, we are in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, several weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we started this series called Prophets and Kings. Our hope is to see the story of the gospel in the nation of Israel. Meaning, I, want, I think if I could impart anything to you guys, the gospel does not begin in the book of Matthew. It begins in the book of Genesis. We see the story of redemption right away. And when you read through any book of the Bible, our hope is to do what Jesus said to do, which is he said, when you read the scriptures, they speak of me, John 5, 39. We want to see Jesus in the scriptures. We want to see Jesus in the story of the nation of Israel. There are different themes you'll see throughout the Bible of suffering and glory or brokenness and redemption. You'll see these different themes being picked up, and there's some sort of element of the gospel in every story. Last week, we finished almost chapter seven, all of seven, and if you remember, the people got the Ark of the Covenant back. It's back in their land. There's this great kind of repentance and revival. Remember, they confess sin. They're fasting. They're praying. God just pours out favor on them. Like, yes, they repented. They get it. As soon as they repent, as soon as they go back to the Lord, immediately the Philistines attack and the battle. And we talked about usually after some spiritual high, there's like a spiritual low. After you decide, I want to get my life right with God, be ready for attacks. But because they repented, We see that God intervenes, there's redemption. We see that God fights and wins the battle on behalf of them. And then they set up something called the Ebenezer Stone. Remember, we, we talked about that. We've used that word you probably have wondered for years, like, what is that? I raised my Ebenezer, and we sing in the Come Thou Fount. You know, when we, when we sing that, the idea is the stone of help or the stone of remembrance. We're saying we will not forget how faithful God has been. We will not forget how God has intervened on our behalf. There are different Ebenezers we need in our life. Things we can look back on and say, Lord, I remember that you showed up. I remember that you're faithful. I remember that you're good. An Ebenezer could be your journal. It could be simply looking back at what God has done. It can be so many different things, but they, they had this Ebenezer stone, and that's kind of where we closed out. So we're going to pick back up in 1 Samuel 7, verse 15, and we're going to read through chapter 8. Remember, chapters are just made up, all right? They kind of get in the way, actually. But we're in chapter 7, verse 15, and we're going walk through chapter 8, and here's the main point or thought today. You're going to see the cry of the people, like the cry of their heart, is this idea of, we want a king. The cry, or the title today, or whatever, the point of this section was the people just yelling, crying out. Like, give us a king. We want a king. I almost titled this, really, like, their true request was, we want to be like everyone else. That was their cry of their heart. We want to be like everyone else. We want a king. And so I just want to read through this. Chapter 8, what we're going through today, is going to set us up for uh, a guy named Saul. Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And it's kind of going to lead us, it tells us, like, the backstory to how we got King Saul, the first king of Israel. So we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15 to the end of 8, but we're not going to do that right now. I'm going to pray because it's a lot of reading today. So I'm going to pray and we're going to kind of break this up and uh, I want to see some some similarities in our lives. The cry of our heart is as well, we want a king, but I think we get confused with what kind of king or which king. So I'm just going to pray that God moves and speaks and uh, that he would be here. Yes. Amen. You guys ready? All right, let's do it. Father, we just want to um, thank you again for this fact that we can just come and worship and sing. God, you deserve the glory. That is absolutely true, only you. And um, Jesus, we just pray that as just a community, we get our hearts set and focused on you. Despite the week we've had, Lord, that you would um, just relieve us of those burdens, those anxieties, those fears. Uh, Lord, that maybe we had a great week, Jesus, but we just ask that we could set our our hearts on you that we'd always set the Lord before us. Lord, that we would learn from the, the motive of the nation of Israel, that we would learn from how you warned them what a king will do to them. And God, we just we just pray and ask that you would create a greater desire. We have desires for things, but we ask that you'd create a greater desire for you. And so, Lord, we thank you. We just pray and ask that you'd be here and speak. In your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Um, I'm convinced more and more that we as people just need good leaders, that we need people who will model the way of Jesus, that will love us well, challenge us well, that they'll say the hard thing, do the hard thing, be patient and gracious. But I'm convinced as much as leadership in so many different capacities has brought pain and has brought hurt, I'm convinced we need good, solid Jesus type of leaders. We need that. I think as a parent, I see that more and more that my kids left to themselves. It's detrimental. It's terrifying. You know, this week we woke up early in the morning. I think it was Tuesday because Tuesday is my like day off. It's my Sabbath. And uh, woke up like seven thirty eight. 8. Get out of bed. And my wife finds these little black locks of hair in a certain spot and then other spots. And we realize our three-year-old, Kinsley, Uh, took scissors and was chasing down our dog and cutting the dog's hair everywhere. And it looked like almost like a murder scene. You're like, what is all this? Like, you're like finding these like, little patterns of like, these little lockets of black hair. So a dog named Luna really just like, you know, cover. And I get it. The dog does need a haircut. My daughter's not wrong. Like, it needs a haircut. It's bad. She can't see. But she was walking around with scissors. Like, obviously chasing the dog around because the dog was not happy. Like, the hair's everywhere. And it was not safe for her or the dog. I have no idea how neither one of them got hurt. But thankfully they didn't. Uh, and it's crazy when I, I looking at this like, what, who are you? And she's like, you know, did you do this? She's like, no. But like, scissors behind her back. Right? It's so, so crazy. It's like we slept in like 30 minutes. They're up at six 30 but left to themselves this is what they'll do right could you imagine like you know bad leadership would be being like yes let me join you let's get the scissors and chase the dog and terrify it right it's funny because i was looking at my daughter my daughter and seeing this and going, man we just gave her 30 minutes alone 30 minutes of alone time and look what she managed to do terrify the dog terrify us cut the dog's hair off and the dog's like all patchy it's weird looking but in 30 minutes she's able to do that and i was thinking we need we need strong good healthy leadership left to ourselves what would we do And we might say, yes, it's the child. No, but no, us, left to ourselves, what we do. If you remember the last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21, verse 25, here's what it says. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It says this a few times in the book of Judges, but this is the last verse. Now, in the Jewish Bible, it doesn't go Judges Ruth for Samuel. It goes Judges for Samuel. So the idea is Judges ends with, there's no king. Everyone did what was right. And it's setting up this desire for a king. It's almost saying, like, yes, we need a king. Now, it's interesting. We're going to see it's very nuanced. Um, God recognizes there was a need for king. I'll show you the verses for that. But we'll see their motive for the king, their desire for the king, was, was off. But the idea was when the people were left alone, when there was no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this verse, I think, just summarizes our world. I don't think we've ever changed as people. This is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's a sense like we need strong leadership. And so we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, As we break down our text, you kind of know what's going on. It's not going to be alliterated. Here's the idea. First point, the need for a king, the ask for a king, and the failures of a king. This is kind of the text today. We're going to see in in verse 15 where it picks up like there's this need for a king. There, There is. There is a need for a king. But their motive was wrong. Their desire, the reason behind it was wrong. Then they ask for a king, and then God warns them, if you get a king, just expect and be aware, this is going to happen. And so we're going to see kind of how this unfolds. So here's the first thing, the need for a king. Let's just read 1 Samuel 7, verse 15. Kind of pick up, remember, there's just been revival, and in some ways they confessed their sin, their hearts turned to God, they raised the Ebenezer stone. Now verse 15, it says, Samuel, he judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, to Gilgal, to Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, by the way, just crazy how in a few chapters he was just born, right? (laughs) Just just born, chapter like 1, 2, and he's old now. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Uh, The name of his firstborn son was Joel or Joel. The name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. This basically set up the need for a king. Now, here's what's interesting. You know, Samuel is so different. The way the book of, of 1 Samuel starts, you see a guy named Eli, who's the high priest, and you see his two wicked sons. Then you see this little boy, Samuel, who's completely different, who is just uh, pursuing the Lord in a different way. And it's crazy because Samuel, or Eli and his sons, they were wicked. Now, Samuel's not wicked, but we're told, obviously, his sons were. They took bribes. They preferred justice. It's crazy to me because, obviously, we see right away there's a failure of Eli we see the fail, failure even of Samuel. I think it's compared and contrasted a little bit differently, though. It really is bizarre. It makes sense that Eli's kids would be wicked because Eli was wicked. It doesn't really make sense for Samuel's kids to be wicked. I'll say this. Maybe if you're parent, you know this, but um, parenting is not math. It doesn't always add up. It's not like the same, Like a chemistry experiment, I like, put this together and this together. This will be the outcome. You know, my brother, sister, and I are completely different. If you're, if you're ever here, we're, we're very different. It, does, it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't add up. Just now having kids, I'm like, okay. It does not always make sense. Two plus two does not always equal four. I feel like in parenting. It's just different. It's just different. But here's, I think, a couple key points. We see that Samuel, it says he's on a circuit, just traveling, doing ministry. He'd just go to these different towns. You see he's raise up his sons. You see, these sons took bribes. They made bad decisions. I think Samuel, what we see is even a good leader can make bad decisions. He's a good leader. Samuel is a good leader. But he lacked discernment, in by appointing his sons, good leaders can make bad choices. We see that clearly with Samuel. But here's what I see. Um, I don't know if you've ever felt this way. It's crazy how just growing up in the church, I you know, went to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, grew up around a lot of pastors and their kids and it's funny because I was always, in some ways, like struggled with the pastor's kids. That was hard for me. I was like, oh, those punks. I watched a pastor's kid one time, like beat up another kid, beat up, and like didn't even get a detention. Like beat up. Like we would have been expelled, right? I remember like, oh, that bug. Like there's just, like this sense of like justice. I want to see that. Like, you know, but it's funny. Now I'm a pastor and have a kid. <laughs> it's just so weird. And God's like, oh, your heart towards them. I'm going to give you one of those. Like, oh boy, Lord, help me. But, but here's what we see so often in ministry. We see that family can be sacrificed on the altar of ministry. And I don't understand Samuel. Samuel's obviously busy. He's doing, he's on the circuit. I think that's pointing out this very clear thing. Samuel's doing work. He's doing the work of God. He's on the circuit. He's going city to city to city. And he to his sons. I feel like years ago, the Lord had to do something to me and still is doing something to my heart where we have to define ministry and success different. Success to me in life is not a big church. Honestly, if I had to summarize it in a simple way, my wife and I just talking over the years, like success to us is that we love each other. Like you love me and I love you in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, we love our kids, our kids love us, and they love Jesus. That would be success. Success would be they love Jesus and love us. That would really be, honestly, it's funny how my goal, my definition, or my goals have changed, and my definition of success has changed. Like, what is success? What what happens if you're, we raise a family, and they make a lot of money, they're doing really well, they have a name for themselves, and yet their heart is not after God. You know, you could say, here they are taking bribes or made a name for themselves. They're sons of Samuel. But man, they perverted. It says they perverted justice. We hate when we see something that's unjust. We hate when you see someone just break justice, pervert justice. This was Samuel's kids. And all I'm saying is, again, good leaders can make bad choices. I don't think it was wise that he pointed his sons. I think that the heart is just to see your kids walk after the Lord. This is different, but in third John, you know, this first, second, third John. Third John is just a page, and it's different. He's talking about his spiritual children, but I love this verse. Third John, verse 4. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He's like, this is my greatest joy, is just to know my kids are walking in the truth. Now, his spiritual kids, but I would say, yes. What is the greatest, greatest joy? The greatest joy would not be like, wow, my kid. If in twenty years he's making five hundred thousand a year like that, who cares if his heart is not after the Lord? So the idea is, it's sad. You look at Samuel and you go, wow, Samuel, great guy. He turned the people's hearts back to God. There's like a little mini revival. God really. Used, Samuel was truly like a Moses. He really was. He's instrumental in the nation of Israel's history. But he's one of the last judges. His sons are the last judges, and they're wicked. And it creates this desire for, we want, it, we want to change. Now, here it's ironic to me. We see that with Eli and his kids, there is like this hereditary leadership that just doesn't work. Just because you're the son of someone does not mean you're going to be a good leader. Now, we see this even with Samuel, like this hereditary leadership. Now, we're going to get into like hereditary monarch type of leadership. Where it's like the, the people are basically like, give us a king, that will fix this. But it's still the son of someone. Right? It doesn't really fix it. But they're going to want this. This is going to bring up the, 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 the need. And also, what we see here is just a succession plan. I don't know. I'm not going to get too much in this. But this idea of like Samuel, just what was his plan? Who was he raising up? Like, we need to be always raising up others. He really wasn't, ra- like, who was he raising up? He just appointed his kids, but was that the right move? Like, we need to have this idea of, like, I'm gonna pour in, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna, give, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a giver, I wanna pour in others, I wanna raise up others. But we didn't see a good succession plan from Samuel. So, we see the need for a king rise up. Now, point number two and point number three, we're gonna spend more time on. Here's what we see number two the ask for a king. This is where it's like, all right, Samuel, you're a great guy, but your kids, man, they're awful. We need a king. So, verse four, here's what happens it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old. <laughs> I don't know, why this makes me laugh. So blood, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being uh, king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now, then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Number two, the ask for a king. It wasn't wrong for them to want a king. What was wrong was their motive or the reason for the king. I feel like there's a very nuanced kind of thing here because sometimes I've heard so often that like it was wrong for them to want a king. No, actually we're told over and over again that like Judah specifically would basically give birth to the king. Through the tribe of Judah, there would be this king to come. We're told very clearly in Deuteronomy 17, it's a lengthy passage, I'll just throw up a verse here. Deuteronomy 17, 15, here's what it says. It says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. God's basically saying you're gonna go into a land and you are, you, you may do this. You may set up a king whom the Lord your God will choose. And we'll see that God actually participates in that. But here's what's interesting. It's not that they wanted a king. It's why they wanted a king. Why did they want a king? Look at verse 5. We'll put this up again. They say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want to be like everyone else. It's not that they wanted a king, but why? The motive, the desire. We don't want to be different. We want to be like everyone else, all these nations around us have this. have this. We also want a king. I think this is so important. I think so often in the Christian life, personally, maybe in the church, we want to mirror culture. This is what the culture around us is doing. We want to participate and do the same. It's kind of uncomfortable to be different and to look different. We don't want to be that weird odd person, like everyone, right? So we' like everyone's doing this, like, oh gosh, everyone. Not everyone. It's weird how that works when you're a kid like, still works as adults. Like, everyone's doing it? Oh, gosh. But, like, we want to be a king. We want a king like everyone else. Like everyone else. There was this desire not to stand out. There was not this desire to stand up. There's a desire to fit in. And I think that's where we get into trouble so often. When the desire to fit in is stronger than the desire to stand out is when we miss it. We miss what God has for us. We miss the point. We, can't, we have to truly stand out, and not in a weird way. I get it. Sometimes when people like hear Christians, look at Christians, see Christians on the news, they're like, oh, Christians, I don't want to be associated with that. I get it. We can be weird. We can be really weird, and we must repent of our weirdness. It's very true. It's bad. It can do more harm than good sometimes. However, this desire to not want to look weird it can't keep us from wanting to stand out. And I think sometimes we just go, I don't, like, you go, it's like, look down the line. Everyone's doing the same thing, saying the same thing, acts the same way. And Christians are like, ah, let's do. You know, like we, don't, we don't want to stand out. God has called us to stand out. Uh, that's funny. I'm going to quote, I don't know why, Silver, I think of you. <laughs> Sorry, not the weird way. But Silver always quotes First Peter 2 9. I'm going to read it, but he talks about how we are peculiar people. And I'm like, Silver loves that verse about being a peculiar person. I don't know if it fits though. Silver's boldness. Anyways, uh, get to know Silver. He's in the bag. <laughs> First um, Peter two verse nine. Here's what Peter says about this. First Peter two nine. <laughs> God says, "You are a chosen generation. Listen to this. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light." Who were once not a people? <laughs> I love that. You're not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Do you see and hear all these identity statements proclaimed over you? I try to like bold some of the identities. Listen again, you, he says, chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, special people. You are very special. Uh, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Not a people, but now a people, the people of God. Not of mercy, you've attained mercy. And he says, you're sojourners and pilgrims. A sojourner is someone who's away from home, a pilgrim is someone who's on the way home, because you're both. You're, you're away from home, but you're also on the way home. You're a pilgrim. It's very interesting. This is not my home. I'm not of this world according to the book of John and Jesus. But I'm on my way home. I'm a pilgrim. In a sense, like on our way to our final, eternal, dwelling place with Jesus. Here's the point of all these statements, though. There's something about this God is saying, I want you to know this is your identity. It's crazy how many different claims there are to try to shape us and form us, identity claims and statements made over us. I want us to sometimes just stand back and take all the biblical ones that God speaks over us. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a holy nation, not a people, but now you're the people of God. You've not obtained mercy, but now you've obtained mercy. Like all of these things God says over us because you are different, you're different. You're gonna be different. You're gonna look different. You're a sojourner, you're a pilgrim. The idea is the church should look different. Different in a way that is attractive though. Different in a way where you go, wow, look at the way they love each other. Look at the way a need comes up and they help meet that need. Look at the way they tactfully and gracefully deal with the issues of the culture and they speak into it in love, but also they hold a mirror to it and say, listen, God has called us to live a different lifestyle. So we'll love you, we'll come alongside of you, but we can't affirm every decision every person wants to make ever. God has called us to the way of Jesus, his way of living. Now we wanna walk in truth, we wanna walk in grace, and we're gonna walk that line of this grace and truth, grace and truth, and it should be attractive. It won't always be attractive. Listen, truth will offend. Eventually we will offend some people. Jesus said, blessed are the ones who are not offended because of me because we know the gospel is offensive in some way, in some capacity, because, but you're blessed if you're not offended because of me. But the point is, Jesus did that so well. I'm a walk in love and walk in grace and neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But again, go and sin no more. There is this idea of grace and truth. It is so beautiful. And the, tr- to the church should look different. The, the whole point was, in a sense, they are supposed to be a kingdom led by priests, led by God. It was different. unlike any other nation, led by God being at the center of all these tribes. And they wanted to sacrifice that to be like everyone else. Again, was it wrong to have a king? No, according to the book of Genesis, Judah would bring a king. According to Deuteronomy, God's like, you're going to have a king, it's okay, I'm going to help you choose that. But it's the reason why like, we can be, so we can be like everyone else. Again, I think, and I try to write it down different ways. The desire to fit in will always keep us away from standing out and standing up. The desire to stand up for our faith must be stronger than the desire to fit in. So the desire in our lives to stand up must be stronger than the desire to fit in. It must be stronger. But I think so often we won't stand up because we don't want to stand out. So we'll find a way just how do we fit in? How do we just say what everyone else is saying, do what else is doing? And God's like, no, I've called you to be, I've called you into my marvelous light, my marvelous light, out of darkness into my light. The whole point of Israel was that it's like you should be—you should be a light on a hill, a city on a hill. You're going to lead all these Gentile nations to you. Now the church is that he's saying the church is this idea of a city on a hill, a light to the world to say, "Wow, what you have, I want." That is beautiful. This peace that you have in an anxious-filled world—what is that? How do we have that? There should be some differences, but yet so often we just kind of fit in like everyone else. There's no difference. I don't know. I just, even like reading this this week, it's like, and for me, just praying over this, this is so much more than just say like, okay, God, how do I bring application? It's like, wow, Lord, I find my heart wanting to not stand out because it is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to look different. It's weird sometimes to like say the thing that's not popular. It's just different. Again, it's funny. I was thinking back to like those middle school days. Remember those terrible days? Goodness gracious! Remember those times where, like, I remember like people like talking and saying a joke, and I have no idea what they're talking about. Everyone's laughing they're like, ha, 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 ha. Oh, I know that joke. I know that reference. I have no idea. Uh, but it's just, remember those feelings? It was awful. It was awful, and it's just so fake. And you just like feel like you had to say the right thing or fit in. It was a miserable thing. And again, I still feel like there is this strong temptation today to be that and do that. There's just still this idea like, oh, I gotta laugh if they're laughing. Ha, ha. Reminds me of the book of Daniel when the music plays bow and the church is like oh the music's playing we got to bow. The culture says music's playing we better bow down. And it's like no no, no. we're going to stand up. Shattering being a bend to go. Doesn't matter what the cultural music is playing. Everyone bows down at the same moment in time. We're going to stand out. It's so different. It's uncomfortable. However, it's attractive when done well. It's something people go wow you actually believe that you're actually standing for that and you're loving each other throughout it. You're not condemning but you're loving. You're redeeming. It's so different. It's so nuanced. So it's interesting how they wanted a king, not a bad want, but the motive and reason was to be like everyone else. It says in verse 7, notice this, verse 7, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You know, this was actually in a moment of, you could say, prosperity. Remember, the Philistines gave back land. The Amorites and Philistines in chapter 7 are actually at peace with Israel. There hasn't been war for at least 20 plus years. The reason why I'm bringing that out, it's usually in the moments of prosperity we forget God. It's usually in the moments of prosperity we're like, oh, we're good now. We got this, God. Do you not see? We've done it pretty well now. The way I try to, I guess, write it or put it down was uh, we are more inclined to leave God's way during times of prosperity than in times of need. I mean, obviously, look at us as our country. Like, we are in a time, you could say, of prosperity. You know, we're in a time where you go, man, the last, maybe not this year, but the last, like, so many years, is, and this is where our heart begins to drift from God. This is when we think, no, God, we got this. We will vote in the right person. We, will, we, we, we have our person, God. We're good. And it's usually that's when our hearts begin to drift from God. So he says, they've not rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. J.D. Greer talks about, in his book on this, I'm rejecting God. Here's what He says: There are two ways to reject God. Stay with me. Two ways to re- reject God. One is to reject Him outright. You see that all the time. Just simply reject Him outright. Uh, he says the other is to say you follow Him, but then not really, but then not really uh, ready to depend on Him. So you're like, okay, well, I just reject Him outright. But one is just like, I believe in Him, I follow Him, but I'm not really there to, to depend on Him. Like, because sometimes we can talk about God, and it's like, again, with them, I think the issue was they wanted something tangible. Like, they wanted something they could see. Here's a king. He's going to fight our battles. That's literally what they say. He's going to fight our battles. We're good. They wanted something tangible. They once were walking by faith, but now they want to walk by sight. You know, I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 8. I think this summarizes it. He talks about Jesus. He says this phrase, whom having not seen you love. This idea of God for us is we don't see him, but he goes, Jesus. Jesus died and rose again. I said to heaven, Peter's writing to the church, you don't see Jesus, but you've done a good job. You love him. But there came a point in time where it's like, we don't see God. We love him, but we just, we're not going to reject him, but we want something tangible. You don't reject him outright, but just in a different kind of nuanced way. And God's like, this is where they're, they're missing the point. The crazy thing is they had a king, right? They had a king, but they wanted a tangible, physical, manly, earthly king, which will always leave you empty. It will never satisfy They wanted something physical right there in front of him. You know, I believe this was a foreshadow to what they said about Jesus when he was standing before Pilate and the people. Remember in John chapter 19, Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your what? Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Their history is just denying the true king, God. We have no king but an earthly king. This happened then. It happened with the story of Jesus. It happens today. We all want this kingdom, but we don't want King Jesus. We want peace and prosperity and blessing and joy, but not a King Jesus who will say, but here's my ways, walk in it. We don't want that. And this is what we see helping, help really developing in their heart. Here's what I love, actually. I just want to put this out in verse six. Notice the request in Samuel's response, because this is so beautiful. It says in verse six, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And what does it say? And Samuel prayed to the Lord. <coughs> it's crazy. This displeased Samuel. Like I, he's mad. He's obviously mad. He's like talking to God back and forth. We're seeing him doing it again. Just like he's talking to God. Like, oh, God, they don't want you. I don't like this. Like, what's up? And it says and he prayed. I, it doesn't just say he got angry. Like he prayed. What a what a beautiful response to when things don't go well in our moment, in our culture, in our politics, in our whatever. We go, ah, I don't like this. And we're like, and just pray. His response was good. Not, God, I need, I, I'm angry. He could have lashed out. He could have said something, done something. But he just goes to God with it. He's like venting to God. What a beautiful thing. Prayer is, is well, that place to do that. Like, hey, God, this is, really, this is hard for me. He's talking over with God. Hey, they didn't reject you but me. Don't take this. This is not a personal thing. If someone decides to not follow Jesus, they're not rejecting me. You're not rejecting this message today. You're not rejecting me. That's easy. That's safe. You can reject me. But rejecting God is a whole different story. And God's like, they're rejecting me. So we see this ask for a king. Now, number three, we're going to see God basically say, if they get a king, remind them, warn them this is what will happen. So number three, we'll just jump right in. The third point, the last point is the failures of a king. God is like, I need to prepare your heart. You want a king, you're going to be kind of left miserable. All right. So verse 10, here's what God says. So Samuel, he told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king from them. Here's what he's saying to the people. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. He will take your, your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take uh, the 10th of your grain and of your vineyard, and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants, and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Do we catch six times? He says, he will take, he will take, he will take. Do you get it? He goes, You have a king who will give, but you want a king who's gonna take. It is mind blowing. When you read this, you go, Wow, we have a God who is such a good king, he wants to give. He gives. He gives freely. He gives liberally, it says. I love that. But he goes, If you want a man made king for him to be able to do what he needs to do, he's gonna take. Tenth of your flocks, tenth of your orchards, your sons, your daughters, he's gonna take. He's warning them, Our God is generous, everything else is ungenerous, everything else wants to take. It is crazy because it just reminds me, like, we live in that moment. We, we sometimes want a bigger this, and it's like, there's no, they're going to take, they're going to take, they're going to take. We have a God who gives. This is just so different. Every earthly person will take. We serve a God who goes, I want to give. I love that in Romans 5, God demonstrated or displayed or showed his love towards us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Like The whole point of God is a God who gives, a God who serves. What does it say in Mark 10, 45 and Matthew 20, 28? Jesus says, I, I the son of, come, of man, did not come to be served, but to serve. Notice the difference between Jesus who gives and the kings who take. He's saying, you want a king over you, just know this, get ready, prepare your hearts. He's going to take, he's going to take. Isn't it crazy the things we want to be kings in our life, will actually end up stealing or taking from us. The things we want, we think this will make us happy if we could just have this, but what does it end up doing? It ends up taking, not giving. And yet we have a God this whole time who says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And it's crazy because I just think we just repeat history over and over again in the same way. It's like, we could go, oh, stupid Israel. We'd still do the same thing. How many times do we set up kings in our life that we think this will be the thing that'll make things come together, and yet all it does is take from us. It takes. It takes your joy. It takes your time. It takes your money. It takes your energy. And God is like, I come freely. I give freely. For God so love he what? He gave. He get, we have a God who gives, and yet so often we want a king That takes. And he's warning them. He's just gonna take. This is crazy. When I read this, I go, oh Lord, my heart is still this way. I can go, oh, Israel, so stupid. You want a king that's gonna take? God even warns them. And then they're gonna we're gonna see they're gonna be like, still give us this king. We still want him. And we go, oh, they're so stupid. That's me. We still do this. We still all the time fall into this trap. God is like, Do you not realize I will give? Do you not realize I came to serve? Like, I will meet the longings of your heart. I, I, can, I can satisfy those deep parts of you that you think some other person or some other thing or some other king or queen, something that will satisfy you, but only I can. God's like, I'm the king that does not take, but gives. It is so different than what they want. Galatians 4, 8, Paul picked up on this. Listen to this. Paul says, formerly, when you did not go- know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that were not God's. It's crazy how basically you become a slave to this king. You'll become a slave to your gods. The thing you thought that would satisfy you is you became a slave to. You're, this guy's going to take. He's going to appoint people in his army. Your sons are going to die in the army. Your daughters are going to be perfumers and bakers. Don't get mad or offended. That's what it says here. He's going to take. This is what the king's going to do. Terrible king. He's just going to take. And he says he's just going to take from you. You think these things will satisfy you, but what they do is they end up enslaving you. Is that not sin? You think this thing that will just meet that longing in your heart will satisfy you, but it ends up enslaving you. And you need it, and you go to it, and you go to it, and it enslaves you more and more. Like maybe this time, and it just enslaves you more. It does not satisfy you. And this, he says, this, God, this God, this king, it's just going to take. But we have a king who gives. I love how Tim Keller says this about our God. Listen to this. He says, Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely, and if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. He's just so much more faithful to give. He's so much more faithful to say, you you fail, I'm I'm still a good king Who's yes, when you're faithless, I'm faithful, I cannot deny myself. That is our God. Obviously, what we see here, too, which we're going to read in verse 19 in a second, but it's crazy how they're like, we still want this, like, we still want this, give it to us. Let's read verse 19. Here's what they say. Verse 19, it says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. He just said, I'm going to take everything. Verse 19, and they said, no, no but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to a city. Sometimes I think the worst thing God could do is answer our prayers is give us what we want. Hey, tell them, you're going to get your king. You want that? You're going to get it. It's crazy because obviously we know this in life. Sometimes we get very bitter when God does not answer our prayers. And yet that might be the very most loving thing God could do. There is a different day when you say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. When you start praying that, it it just changes things. You know, Jim Elliott, famous missionary, beautiful man of God, said this so well, became like a saying. He says, God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. Hey, God, we're going to leave the choice with you. We want a king. That's our desire, but we're going to leave the choice with you. They said, no. <laughs> They're like, no. So adamant. It's crazy, right? Again, this just reminds me of parenting. We're like, you're so confident in your bad decision. Like, how do you know? It's like, no, I want that. I'm like, oh, you're gonna be miserable all day if you get that. Like, it's we are so adamant in our decision making. I think sometimes the most loving thing God can do is not answer our prayers. But sometimes God's like, okay, I'm gonna give you what you ask for because I need you to see this play out. Sometimes, sadly, I, I wish this wasn't the case. We need it to play out to go, oh god's way would have been better i should have left the choice with him maybe that would have worked out better but god's like you know what you need to see this maybe play out maybe this idea of jesus says some fall on the rock and sometimes the rock falls on them (laughs) some people learn the hard way some people need this to play out in this way and they're gonna see this play out and it's funny because they're gonna think it's going really well like chapter 9 10 they're like wow this is great they're gonna see it going well and then they're like oh this is not going well maybe god was right yeah but we see this. This is the way God works in this way. And here's what I just want to point this out. Again, Romans 1, Paul talks about this, how God sometimes will give us over to things we want, which might not be good. Look at Romans 1, verse 21. He says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And he goes on to say, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. And he says this again a different verse. God gave them up. He's like, you want this? I'm going to give you up to the desires of heart. You want this? You knew God. You knew you knew me, but you want something opposite of me. I'm going to give you up to that thing. And this is so often what I think we have to be aware of. It's like, wow, Lord, I don't want to, I want to come to you humbly and say, Lord, the choice, I'm going to leave it with you. Here's my heart. But in reality, like, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you pull the trigger. The Jamalian idea. But I'm going to leave the choice in your hands. You know what's really interesting? In the book of Hosea, God actually points back to this moment in time, 1 Samuel 8. And first Samuel 8, God points back to this very moment. You wanted a king, you asked for a king. I gave you that. Listen to this. It's Hosea chapter 13, verse 11, verse 10 and 11. Uh, God says this, where now is your king? Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. God's like, you want, I gave you what you wanted. Again, sometimes I think we should say, Lord, again, not sometimes, every time. Lord, not my way, not my will. I've talked to people many times who are praying over things, and they're like maybe asking for advice, and I'm like, it sounds like your mind's made up. I think you just want me to affirm what you're asking. I don't, I can't, I can't do that. Like, like there's a side of it where it's like people are like, I just want to know, like, can God just affirm me in this? I'm going to him in prayer. I'm not really leaving his hands. I'm kind of saying this is what I want to do, and I hope God does it. And if God doesn't do it, I'm probably gonna walk away from God. It's like that's not the way to go. I want to try to put put God in that catch twenty two position. He's like, okay, I'll give you what you want. And I just think one of the, again, this can be. I think a terrible spot to be in. i like, all right, Lord, I'm like asking, I'm forcing your hand. Here's the thing. I would just say leave the choice with God. The story ends with this. Go home. Everyone go to their city. And we're going to see a guy named Saul come on the scene. But it's before that. Here's what I want to say. I think this like leaves the door open for basically the book of Mark and the book of Matthew where it says the kingdom of God is here. And he says, your king is here, essentially. Like the kingdom is here because the king is here. I think what he's saying, like, so what I see here in Samuel is this longing for a king, this king disappoints, God says this king's going to disappoint, and Jesus is like, I'm the king you've been looking for. The kingdom of God is here, it's near. I'm the king that will satisfy you. I'm not the king who takes. I'm the king who gives. I'm a different king. I'm not an earthly king. I'm not a king that's going to give you what you want. I'm a king who's going to lovingly show you what it is you need. I'm going to be there for what you need, not what you want. I'm a good king. Jesus is that king of kings. Jesus is that king that I think that we all crave and want. And I think as we see this in play with Saul or David or Solomon and we see kind of the kingdom split as we see this play out, we go, "Oh my goodness, everything we we wanted, we might see a glimpse of Jesus and David. We might see like a little glimmer of Jesus in Solomon and his wisdom. We might see some p- taste of it, but all it does is create this greater longing for the true king, the king that will satisfy that craving of our heart for there to be p- peace and shalom in the kingdom that can be only be offered by Jesus, the true king of kings. And I'll say this, it creates that longing in us. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. We just want to pray and say, Jesus, we realize kings will fail us, but you will not. You take your rightful place in our hearts. So why don't we do this? Why don't we end? Why don't you just close your Bible really quick? Why don't you just bow your head? As we just end this time just in worship, just kind of get alone really quick. Just be still. Bow your head, close your eyes, and just kind of with an open heart, and even if open hands, if you want, just say, Jesus, I want you to be king. I'm tired of making other things king in my life. All they do is take, but you give. And just with open hands, allow Jesus to give you himself, to place things in your hand and say, Jesus, you give. You are the great giver. God, you so love, you gave. I would just say approach this time of worship now with Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you for being the generous king who gives, who gives, who loves who did not come to be served, but serve. You are the king that fulfills the longing of my heart. Thank you, Jesus. Why don't you just like make that your prayer, make that your cry, talk to him, say, thank you, Jesus. You're the king that's unlike any other king. We just want to praise you and thank you. Here's, I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, when people transfer their expectations for righteousness and salvation from God to government, they are sure to be disappointed. Our expectations are not on this world or how this world can satisfy. Our expectations are on Jesus, the King of Kings, who will ultimately meet that longing of our heart. So let me just pray for you guys. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus, you are the king. We want a king, but it's you. It's you, not like all the other nations. It's unlike all the other nations, unlike everyone else. Lord, we ask that we would not give up the thing that makes us unique. This made them unique, God this priesthood nation, this nation where, God, you were king, and we don't want to give up the thing that makes us unique. We thank you, Jesus, that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that we are pilgrims and sojourners away from home and on the way home. We thank you, Jesus, that that we were once not a people, but now we're the people of God. For what you speak over us and serve us, we just want to say thank you, Lord. Jesus, you are the king of all kings. We worship you, we praise you in your precious name. Church, why don't you stand and let's just worship.